and welcome. You are listening to Modern Beers and 90s Nostalgia. This is episode 19, special episode. We are coming to you from Cincinnati, Ohio, with a nice themed episode about all things Cincinnati. So stick around. There's a lot of good stuff happening here today. And it's going to be, I think, the beginning of a lot of great uh, travel trips and episodes where we can broadcast from uh, all over the country because there's a lot of great breweries out there and there's no reason why I can't go to those cities and drink their beer and talk about it. And we'll, uh, coming up, have interviews with breweries and maybe we'll visit your favorite place. And if you have recommendations, uh, send them to me at Beers and 90s on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, might even make a Snapchat if I'm feeling saucy. Who knows? But send them my way because I'd love to I'd love to hear them and I'd love to know where to go next. And we have a really cool episode in Cincinnati today. The coolest part of Ohio is slowly trying to escape into Kentucky and it's a pretty badass area. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to hesitate. I'm going to jump right in and let's get into the beer because uh, Cincinnati does beer pretty darn well. If I had a million dollars well, I'd buy you a house. I would buy you a house. And if I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars. Well, this week, uh, while there are a number of great Cincinnati breweries that I've got to try with dinners and just going out for drinks, uh, the one that I've chosen that I actually had out as well is Mad Tree Brewing Company, right out of uh, downtown Cincinnati there. They do offer brewery tours and stuff. They're not uh, out of a basement or anything. So go check them out if you haven't heard of them. And you can buy their beer all over uh, Ohio and Kentucky and probably some of the surrounding states. They're getting larger and larger with their distribution. I had their psychopathy. And I don't know if you could pronounce that differently. Psychopathy. Because the word hop is in the middle and always highlighted because it is an IPA. Had that out at dinner the other day, and very, very particular blend of hops, uh, which is the Cascade Centennial and Chinook, and you can taste that. Uh, If you ever have a beer that you really like that has those hops, you know what I'm talking about, because you can taste every bit of that. It's uh, it's heavy aroma, heavy flavor. Uh, I went a little different, though, for the show, and I got their Blood Orange Psychopathy, um, which is a... Same thing in IPA, but with blood orange. So that should be pretty delicious. And then we're also going to be trying their Happy Amber, which obviously is an amber ale. So I'm going to pop open the blood orange IPA. Uh Uh-huh. There it is. And we'll give that a try first. Now, contrary to what you might think with a blood orange, this is not colored really any differently than their typical IPA. It does look a little bit more orange, but there's no... uh, It's not a deep orange it's definitely not a red and you get mostly hops off the off the smell now the flavor is very reminiscent of their flagship ipa but you do get some of the blood orange flavor but not till it's pretty much left your mouth you get the back of your throat you get that like i just ate a piece of an orange that aftertaste you get from citrus Uh, you get that right after you swallow it overall though it's pretty tasty uh Citrus in your IPA is typically a nice compliment. Um, the more I drink this, the more I get that aftertaste of, of eating an orange, which isn't necessarily bad, but it's not 
seven in the morning and I didn't just have an orange with breakfast. So it's, it's sticking with me longer than I would like it to, which is a little bit of a turnoff. And typically you see in IPAs, you see stuff like hints of grapefruit. The orange is uh, definitely powerful, much more than I originally anticipated it being. Cause it's all I taste now. I want to drink more of the beer to get the orange taste out of my mouth, which doesn't make any sense. So good marketing ploy though. If they're trying to get people to just drink a bunch of their beer, <laughs> bravo, mad tree. Uh, pretty delicious though. I, I think I would stick with their flagship instead of the blood orange version, uh, but pretty tasty. We're going to move along to the Happy Amber from, once again, Mad Tree Brewing Company. The Happy Amber is 6% alcohol, 30% IBU, uh, opposed to the Blood Orange IPA, which is 6.2% alcohol with 72 IBU. Obviously, the IPA is going to be higher in the IBU and the bitterness scale because, you know, it's pale ale. Uh, but the Happy Amber does have five different kinds of malts in it, too, so... We can expect an amber color for that reason and for the obviousness of it being an amber ale. Let's crack it open here. Now the irony here is if you were to give me this and tell me this was the blood orange IPA, I would say, yeah, that makes sense. The color on this is, it's a, like a thick orange. You can't see through it. It's definitely darker in the center but it is, uh, I mean, that it's like, I would describe that color as blood orange. And the fact that that's not the beer that we're drinking right now is pretty funny, but it is, uh, this is the happy Amber and nothing really jumps out at me. Uh, pretty standard. Uh, it, this is a great go-to beer if you want something that doesn't have, I, this is going to sound mean, I don't mean it to, but if you want like a go-to beer that doesn't have an overpowering flavor, so something you can uh, always go to and order without worrying about how it's going to affect your palate or go with what you're eating, this is the perfect beer for that. It doesn't have a bad taste at all. It's just, uh, I mean, for lack of a better term, you basic. So we'll see. We'll see how the rest of this can goes down, but nothing too special jumping out. I actually I expected a lot more out of it given the, uh, given the five different malts and the strong flavor, the orange and the hops and their other beers. But what are you going to do? That's a mad tree brewing though. Definitely a place to check out. Their beer list is expansive. So do not judge them by the two that I tried. I tried to pick out a couple random ones instead of going straight for a flagship. And don't judge them by that or by my opinion. Form your own opinion. Hopefully you never listen to this show and you're like, well, I'm skipping that beer because I don't always know what I'm talking about and everybody has different tastes. There's people out there that still drink Bud Light for Christ's sakes. Um, I'm one of them on football days. Shh, I didn't say that. And... These are, uh, these are great beers. I'm going to obviously finish both of them, but not the Amber is not something I would order unless 
I don't know. Unless I guess <laughs> nothing good to say about it. I'm sorry, Mad Tree. Your your IPA is absolutely delicious. Your amber um, is is very basic. I keep trying to come up with ways to compliment it without, but it's just like it is leveling the playing field, and this is this is the starting point. I don't know what to tell you. It's delicious. It's not super great. There's not a flavor I'm going to. And it's actually got me to the point where now I'm rambling about the description because I can't think of anything good to say, so I'm not saying anything at all. Golden rule, folks. Let's move on. Well, as I stated earlier, we are in Cincinnati, Ohio, and this episode is about Cincinnati, Ohio. And if you ever find yourself flying into Kentucky, you will fly into an airport by the call letters of CVG, which is literally across the river from Cincinnati. So take a little trip over there, especially if you're here for a layover, and go downtown. There's a lot of cool stuff. And one of the companies that was headquartered in downtown Cincinnati from 1946 to 2000 was a little toy company by the name of Kenner. Kenner was founded in 1946 and acquired by General Mills in 1967 and then acquired by Tonka in 1987 and then Hasbro in 91 before being dissolved by Hasbro in 2000. Uh, some of Kenner's greatest toys, the Easy Bake Oven, the Spirograph, they did toys for Alien, they did the Six Million Dollar Man, they did DC Comics uh, Superpowers Collection which had some great 80s Superman and whatnot uh, action figures. They did the real Ghostbusters, which was the Ghostbusters cartoon that followed the movie that ran from 86 to 91. It was a great show, and I myself definitely had a lot of those action figures, including the car and the big firehouse and all the all the Ghostbusters. Everybody always wanted Vankman. Good job, Bill Murray. But most importantly, in their tenure previous to uh, the 90s that we'll talk about later, uh, they got the Star Wars toys. When Star Wars came out, everybody, well, not everybody, nobody, nobody wanted to do the Star Wars toys. Everybody thought the movie was going to be a flop and nobody wanted to do the toys. So Kenner got the contract and the way they wrote the contract is they, I mean, I know I'm splitting hairs here, but they got essentially all the money from the merchandise. They really screwed Lucasfilms on the uh, on the merchandising, and it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't really matter because Lucasfilms, like, they're not hurting or anything. But as far as the toys went, Lucasfilms got something like thirty cents per dollar of everything sold, and obviously, Star Wars from seventy six to eighty five in the toy world dominated. Like, <laughs> there wasn't a better toy to have. 
So they had that contract, and that's essentially what put Kenner on the map. I mean, Easy Bake Oven kept them going. Spirograph kept them going. But that Star Wars contract, uh, you could feed your family for generations on that money. Then the 90s came, and in 91, Hasbro, um, which we're all familiar with Hasbro, hopefully. If not, do a quick Google search. You can find plenty of toy lines made by Hasbro. Uh, They acquired, or bought, or however you want to say it, Kenner. And the 90s were an interesting time for Kenner. The Star Wars contract was up and would later be renegotiated for Phantom Menace, which we'll get to. But in the meantime, they put out some toys that I definitely collected in the 90s, and let's see if you did too. First of all, like I said, the real Ghostbusters. Now, this started in the 80s and like barely bled through into the 90s, but it's definitely worth talking about because it was one of the most popular action figure series uh, of the late 80s. And like I said, it was based on the Ghostbusters movie, so you had the four main guys. And then Kenner did something that some toy companies have tried before, and it's always dangerous territory, but they said, all right, we got the initial designs. You know, we got this cartoon show. We got the the characters in it. We're going to branch off from that, and we're going to design our own additions to this character line, even though they're not in the show. And, I mean, that's always dangerous territory. You know, like if you're watching The Office, and suddenly there's some guy named Frank who wasn't in the show, you don't care about Frank. You want the Dwight Schrute figure. It's a weird analogy, but I'm just saying, the branching off and creating characters that aren't actually in the show is dangerous territory. And the way toys companies used to, and the way toy companies used to work is if they did that, they would include a comic book that was brand new that featured those characters. So something like G.I. Joe action figures would come with a comic that showed the action figure that they were selling. So they're like, yeah, we know you don't know this action figure yet, but here's a comic book that shows it. And you're like, oh, okay, so it is part of the G.I. Joe world. But uh, they branched off with the Ghostbusters and created all sorts of different monsters and different special editions of the four main guys and uh, Janine and made tons of money off that. And those are some of the best toys out there, in my opinion, that came out of that late 80s, early 90s action figure era. Um the only objection I would have to that that I'll also talk about later with some of the other lines is at this point, G.I. Joe's were well past having the movable elbows. So if you got an action figure that whose elbows didn't move, it was felt like it was like a generation behind. Like the original Star Wars toys, their elbows didn't move just in the show. Uh, Batman came out, the Tim Burton film, with Michael Keaton, and Kenner got the contract for those toys. So they began production line with uh, the Tim Burton film, and they made toys for all the 90s Batman films. So Batman, Batman Returns, Batman and Robin, Batman Forever. They had the contract on all those, and they also made toys for the animated series. And this was another thing that they branched away from characters shown on the uh, big screens as well as the small screens in the animated series. So they would kind of do their own thing. Like if you wanted a Batman action figure, there were tons of designs, dozens probably, different costumes, different, 
like a gray and black camo costume and weird backpacks that shot rockets that you'd never see him actually wear in the movies or the cartoon. But they're, they're just toys. I mean, that's what toys became. They were, they had the replicas of what you saw on the screen and then they had all these additional uh, versions and additional things you could get. And that's what action figures were. It was fantastic. You always wanted to get the best ones. And sometimes it branched off into weird areas like uh, with Jurassic Park, but we'll go there shortly. So Batman Returns brought out the uh, Wayne Manor, which was this amazing toy. I don't know if you had it. I did, and I loved it. It was a mansion front, and then you kind of unfolded it, so it did like a three-way zigzag, and there was a bat cave in the back. There was a quote-unquote bat cave garage door in the middle, and then Wayne Manor in the front. And so you had a little Bruce Wayne figure, and then you had a little Batman figure. You could put them in this little, I don't know, costume change pod. Who knows what it was actually called. But you put one on each side, and then you rotate it, and it's like, oh, that's the... It's like Superman phone booth, essentially. That's where he changes costumes. And they, they had the Batmobile, but then all of a sudden they had... Like the Bruce Wayne coupe, which was, it looked like this sweet car. And you put Bruce Wayne in it, and then you pulled the back out. And all of a sudden, Batman was driving it. The sides dropped down, there were missile launchers, and there you go. Now it's a crazy version of the Batmobile. So they branched off, and they made their own toys uh, with that same name. And we all know that the name is what sells for most things. And that's how they made plenty of money on the Batman toys. But like all toys, they kind of drove it into the ground and eventually uh, weren't making much money on it. Enter Jurassic Park. When that movie came out, Kenner again, under Hasbro, was the company that got the contract to do the Jurassic Park toys. So the, <laughs> the initial series did not do bad. I personally have a vendetta against the initial series of Jurassic Park toys. So there's the character Tim, who's the little kid in the Jurassic Park movie. And his action figure drives me crazy. So first and foremost, the Grant action figure looked like Grant. No doubt about it. You looked at it, you're like, oh, it's Grant. He even came with that stupid little safari hat or whatever it is. And you're like, that's Grant. Then you have the little kid Tim figure, which was just as tall... So they're, first of all, figured out, I know you guys got molds and stuff and you're in the toy business, but, you know, shrink him down a little. He's supposed to be this little kid. And then if you look at him, he looks absolutely nothing like the kid in the movie. And it makes, it makes me think that they used a mold from a previous toy and we're like, no, we'll just use this and call it the kid. No one will care. Because I had him, I still have him to this day. I'll put a picture online. I sit in my little action figure box. Still have this stupid Jurassic Park kid. And it just didn't look like him at all. And it wasn't them branching away from the movie. This was still one of the original uh, figures. However, when they did branch away from the movie, they made a series called Chaos Effect. And Chaos Effect was an expansion of Jurassic Park, which had nothing to do with the movies. And it was a lot of different dinosaurs, and they were all, like, brightly highlighter-colored. And it was a pile of garbage. So sales were crap. And this was about the time 
that they announced Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Now, as you may remember, Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace, uh, was quick on the tails of the original trilogy re-release. And what happened was Kenner had that Star Wars toy contract. Well, that contract expired between Star Wars movies, since there was one in 83 and not another one for, you know, 15 years. So... They had to renegotiate and come up with a new contract. And the new one was not as great as the old one. And it's one of the things that ended up kind of putting them out of business. I'm not going to go into all the special details, but if you are a Netflix subscriber, like most people are, there is an amazing documentary. I believe it's an actual series, but one of the episodes uh, is about Kenner Toys and the The series is called The Toys That Made Us. I highly recommend it, uh, especially just the Kenner episode. Watch it. I mean, what are you talking about? Like 40 minutes, 50 minutes? Check it out. It gives a great history on Kenner, where they came from, how the Star Wars contract worked, and uh, eventually how they met their demise. So Kenner had the thought process that, you know, Jurassic Park expansions were uncalled for anyway we're not selling very well and that was okay because you know there was a new star wars movie coming out we had to renegotiate the contract but um i mean truth be told it's a fucking star wars movie so who's really concerned about that not doing well and lo and behold we were all introduced to the wonder that is jar jar binks and darth maul and the weird fucking frog guy and the disappointment that haunted us for the next, you know, six years after. And that was, you know, Star Wars Episode One, the reboot, the disaster. And we'll talk about that on another episode. And if you guys are sending me dirty looks right now or cursing my life, well, send me your input. Love to know what it is before I record an episode talking about how much that's a disaster. Used to defend it. I don't anymore. Getting off base, though. Uh, Star Wars Phantom Menace toy line. They started production of it immediately before the movie. And they had, I mean, the toys were fantastic looking back. You know, Darth Maul, you got Qui-Gon Jinn, you got your young (sighs) Obi-Wan. Jar Jar Banks (laughs) toy, I guess, too. Uh, You got the little droid guys. I mean, there's, there was a lot, obviously, uh. Natalie Portman, the unspoken love of my life. There was a lot going on there in the toy world, and there's plenty to do, plenty to make without even venturing off. Like they didn't need to go off base like they did with Batman, Jurassic Park, and Ghostbusters. They just had, like, let's stick with everything in the Star Wars movie. Plenty of toys to be made. So, anticipating amazing sales, 
uh, like all the previous Star Wars movies and especially all the hype. I mean, you couldn't go to like a freaking Taco Bell without getting a Star Wars something in your meal. Didn't matter if it was a kid's meal. You just got something that had Star Wars crap on it. This was the most anticipated movie release in decades because it followed one of the biggest franchises in film history. So Hasbro and Kenner, they were like, this is going to be great. Uh, Kenner was happy just being this action figure division after Hasbro bought him in 91. And they were ready to go, so they made all these figures. And sales sucked. Uh, I mean, like the movie, the sales were lower than they expected. And they had tons of overstock. So that was at the end of the decade... And you combine that with all their Jurassic Park spinoffs that they tried to make extra money off of. And Hasbro decided in the year 2000 to dissolve uh, Kenner, close down the Cincinnati office. They took about 100, 120 people with them out to, I believe, L.A., uh, California, somewhere to work at Hasbro headquarters, but then they got rid of God, 420, 430 people, lost their jobs uh, from a company that had been around since 1946 and was a staple in Cincinnati, Ohio. And the funny thing is, this was not the time of the internet. So like people didn't always know, like especially adults that were actually out and about in downtown and like you see a building that says Kenner, or even if you're in the building, you see Kenner on the office list, because I don't believe they ever had their name on the outside of the building, even during the Star Wars years. But they were such a huge impact on the toy world, on the action figure world. Like They were setting the rules for what toys would be. Uh, you had companies out there like Toy Biz and Mattel and obviously Hasbro, all competing with these guys and competing ferociously because Kenner with that Star Wars line, I mean, they owned the market and did really well and were the staple in Cincinnati that, that kind of left. Uh, I heard a story two days ago. I have a friend down here in Cincinnati who was telling me, he said, I was going to school uh, with this girl I really liked. And, you know, and then he trailed off for a second. He's like, oh, I'm pissed off. I never dated her because I really liked her. And she was so cute and blah, blah. I was like, story bro stick to the story stick to the story uh, but he said yeah every year for christmas he, he said her uncle would give her these toys that were brand new like off the factory floor brand new uh, nobody had them yet and it was every christmas so he watches this documentary on netflix finds out that kenner uh, is from cincinnati and was in a building you know 10 minutes from his current work. He never knew. He grew up here and just never knew they were there. And the person who got his this girl Christmas presents every year, her uncle, was one of the founders of Kenner. It's a, it's a crazy third world out there right inside your backyard that you don't really know about because you don't know who's behind the scenes of these toy companies that are making everything, uh, even though there's so much thought and dedication and in some cases deceiving that goes into the marketing and the building and the design and the engineering of these toys uh, back then and even more so today with the stuff that 
toys can do today. It's insane. And Kenner helped lay that pavement. And they're not around anymore, but they uh, they had their glory years in the early 80s and late 70s and put out some great toys in the late 80s and throughout the 90s until they kind of fizzled out. And, I mean, the Star Wars thing, you almost want to blame George Lucas instead of Kenner because George Lucas made the damn movie. Kenner just made the toys. That is going to wrap it up for episode 19. I want to thank the city of Cincinnati for being so awesome. Uh, Mad Tree Brewing, you guys have some great beers. You have one that's pretty basic. I'm not going to jump into that right now. But uh, you, Cincinnati, you guys did it, and you did it well. I'll be back and taste more of your breweries and find out more of your history. There's a lot of stuff going on down here, and I'm happy to find out more about it. Next week, join us when we're in Grand Rapids. It's going to be a blast, and hopefully we'll get to talk to some brewmasters. And if we don't, just forget you ever heard that. But thank you guys for listening. This has been, uh, this is, well, this is technically February now, but January was our biggest month ever. We started doing these episodes on October 1st, and January had more downloads than any other month. Uh, almost more than two of them combined. So that's <laughs> that's phenomenal. 13 countries out there uh, downloading this show and subscribers all over the world. I can't thank you guys enough. I love doing this, and you guys are the reason that I keep doing it. Uh, let me know your input. I would love to know what you think, whether it's a comment on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, or you can email me directly, Justin, J-U-S-T-I-N, at justinlammusic.com, J-U-S-T-I-N-L-A-M-B-M-U-S-I-C.com. If you're not driving and you're sitting down, pull up your phone, shoot me an email. Let me know what you guys think. I'm uh, very thankful, very happy. It's been a great January. This February is going to be even better. Looking forward to it. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much. (laughs) 